to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, where we evaluate efforts to improve the lives of families, schools, and students. Back in 1996, about 28% of American teens reported that they'd smoked cigarettes within the last month. In 2018, that dropped to 5%. However, today, about 25% of seniors in high school reported smoking e-cigarettes or vaping in the last 30 days. And schools are trying to figure out how to put a stop to this upward trend. Now, e-cigarettes or vaping are battery-powered devices. A lot of them look like pens, they look like flash drives, and they heat up a liquid to produce a vapor that users inhale. Since the devices can be very difficult to detect, it's easy for students to vape in class or the school hallway or even at home with parents and teachers unaware. To talk about how this issue affects today's students and schools, I brought on AEI fellow and former FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who's called vaping an epidemic among youth. And I asked him to talk about policy efforts to keep e-cigarettes out of students' hands. After that, I talked with Mila Vascones-Gatsky, who's a substance abuse counselor for Arlington Public Schools, and Evie Blod, a reporter from Ed Week, who covers vaping in schools to discuss how schools are addressing the problem. Scott, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having me. So you've made the case for a pretty muscular response to e-cigarettes and vaping. So let me start with a little problem definition. Can you make the case for unconvinced listeners that youth vaping is an epidemic? Well, look, we saw a 78% increase year over year in 2018 in the number of teens who are using e-cigarettes. And then in a 2019 survey, we saw another about 30% increase. So I think at this point, when you have fully almost a third of all teens using e-cigarettes in the past 30 days, it's reached epidemic proportions. So we're at a high rate, and I read some of the posts that you put up in the Washington Post. One sentence really stood out. You wrote, e-cigs aren't safe, but when used properly, they're not nearly as harmful as lighting tobacco on fire and smoking it. And when you put it in that stark terms, it sounds pretty strange to smoke a cigarette. And I'm wondering, for those who don't understand it, what are you actually doing when you're vaping? I mean, what are you inhaling and how do these things work? Right. Well, you're superheating a liquid that contains nicotine. And in the case of the popular e-cigarette that kids are using, Juul to nicotine salt. So it's highly absorbed in the lungs. So it's very efficient in delivering nicotine into the blood and replicates a cigarette. And that's why it's been a useful tool for some adult smokers to help them transition off of tobacco. You know, and some adults are able to fully transition off of smoking regular cigarettes by using e-cigarettes. But in the case of children, in the case of kids, we've seen smoking rates really plummet among youth. And I think that's because we've successfully stigmatized smoking among kids and teens in this country. It's no longer seen as fashionable. The kids who are vaping are not kids who would have smoked anyway. You know, people argue, well, at least they're vaping and they're not using cigarettes. But these are kids who wouldn't be using nicotine altogether, but they see e-cigarettes as something different. They see it as something fashionable. And now we do know that many of these kids having become addicted to nicotine through e-cigarettes, some proportion of them are going to go on to smoking. So there is data now that demonstrates that kids who initiate on nicotine through e-cigarettes, some proportion of them will become long-term smokers, whereas they wouldn't have been smokers if they had never initiated on an e-cigarette. So we have seen a pretty major public health victory over the past 20 years in terms of kids smoking. I wonder, is that reduction in youth smoking part of a public health campaign that targeted youths specifically? In other words, did we have a distinctly 
youth tobacco reduction or was the reduction in youth smoking just a product of the reduction in smoking generally? Well, smoking generally has been falling. If you look what's happened in the last two years, smoking rates actually really have accelerated their decline among adults and kids. So the youth use of, of cigarettes, regular cigarettes, has plummeted in the last two years. That's a public health victory. It's overshadowed by this rise in e-cigarette use among kids. So I think when you ask the question, what has been responsible for that decline, particularly among kids smoking, I think there's a lot of things at play, including different social trends. But there's no question that we've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in public education campaigns aimed at teenagers trying to reduce smoking rates among kids. So when FDA got the authority under the Tobacco Control Act to regulate tobacco products, they got user fees associated with that. Those user fees are paid by the tobacco companies. A significant portion of that money goes into public education campaigns targeted at kids. And those have been very effective. We had a lot of consumer testing done on those. We know those ads are highly effective. And we've had some pretty rigorous analysis when I was at FDA, Don, demonstrating the impact that they have had. And it's, it's measurable in terms of the number of kids that it prevented from initiating on tobacco. When I got to the agency in 2017, for the first time, we set out to develop a campaign also aimed at e-cigarettes around kids' use of e-cigarettes. It took us a year to get that campaign together. So in the fall of 2018, just as we were getting the data from the National Youth Tobacco Survey showing this dramatic increase in youth use of e-cigarettes, we were ready to launch that campaign targeting kids, educating them about the dangers of using e-cigarettes as well. So there's this whole idea out there that, well, e-cigarettes are helpful to get people off of cigarettes that they are addicted to. And this is mainly targeted at adult cigarette smokers. Right. Does that mean that there's an idea that e-cigarettes are safe and do most kids see them as safe? Well, I think the challenge is a lot of teens do see them as safe and certainly don't see them as smoking and don't understand that they're using an addictive substance and they're going to become long-term users of these products if they continue to use them. But there's no question e-cigarettes are not safe. They're less harmful than combusting tobacco. They're less harmful than smoking a cigarette. And if you're a currently addicted adult smoker and you can fully transition to an e-cigarette, you're going to get a net, net public health benefit. You're going to get a net health benefit. But there's risks associated with e-cigarette use separate from the fact that you're using nicotine becoming addicted to you know, a highly addictive substance. We now have data showing both in animal studies as well as human data that the e-cigarettes probably do have a long-term impact on the lungs. There's no free lunch here. The lung itself is not a good drug delivery platform. And what I mean by that is you shouldn't be using the lung as a way to get drugs into the blood. Right. Outside of a handful of use cases, so for example, anesthesia, we, we deliver drugs through the lungs. People inhale drugs in order to um, get an anesthetic in certain cases. But most of the time when we're delivering drugs to the lung, we're trying to treat the lung directly. So if you think of an asthmatic who takes an albuterol inhaler, you're using that inhaler to get the drug to the lung to right. treat the lung. You're not using not to it to get stream. into the blood. When you use the lung as a drug delivery platform, you're probably going to do secondary damage to the lung, lung in the long run. So when you were at the FDA, what efforts did you take that were specifically aimed at trying to keep e-cigarettes out of the hands of young people? Well, we took a, a lot of enforcement actions. So we took literally thousands of actions against retailers who were selling cigarettes and e-cigarettes to minors. We launched the first campaigns against retailers who were violating the law and selling e-cigarette products to minors. We launched a very large public service campaign. We put ads in schools. We put ads on, we geofenced 
and put them on the web, and eventually we put them on TV. We, we were reluctant at first to put the ads on TV because we knew that there would be bleed into the adult market. And the ads were so effective when we did our, our testing, our focus group testing, that we knew that if adults saw these ads, they would become discouraged about using e-cigarettes as well. So initially we held off on the TV, but eventually when the youth rates continued, then we went up on TV because that was a more effective way to reach more kids. But initially we put the advertising into schools, into bathrooms, and we geofenced the schools and went to websites where we knew kids would be. So geofencing, can you just explain what that means? So we, the ads would pop up when you were in certain locations where we knew kids would frequent. So you can tell through the GPS on a phone where someone is. Gotcha because we wanted to make sure we were reaching mostly a youth audience with some of these ads. And we went up on, on websites where we knew kids would use those websites. They were popular among kids, I think Fortnite and some other things. Right. We went up on. And you put them in bathrooms? We actually put ads, posters inside bathrooms. We bought space in bathrooms and inside schools as well. But believe it or not, that, that space can be bought. And we bought it <laughs> and put ads up in there. There's a market for everything, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And in bathrooms, because that's where kids... That's where go. kids are going to vape, yeah. Right. So what do we know about how kids get these products? They're not allowed to buy them unless they're 18 or older in most places, right? Right. Most of the, the acquisitions through straw purchases. It's an enterprising 18-year-old buying you know, 10 jewels and reselling them to 16-year-olds in the high school. There are direct purchases or stores still selling these products to kids illegally. I think for retailers, one of the challenges was, you know, most retailers know it's inappropriate to sell a pack of cigarettes to kids. There was a perception, I think, in, in retail shops that, you know, it's not so bad. We can sell the e-cigarettes to the kids. We just won't sell them the cigarettes. I think you saw some of that behavior, and that's why we we pretty aggressively went after retailers and large chains that were selling uh, e-cigarettes to children and took a lot of enforcement actions on the basis of that. We also took enforcement action on, uh, against products that were marketing directly to kids. So they were being packaged or branded in a way that we felt was kid appealing. And we did some of those in conjunction with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, because, you know, they could reach a broader swath of violative activity than we can under the FDA statute. And so we partnered with the FTC. So for example, if things were packaged to resemble something a kid would use, like a candy, or we, you know, we had e-liquids being sold in things that look like Oreos, that's something the FTC could go after. We might not be able to go after that under our statute. And so we took a lot of enforcement actions against people who were selling e-liquids in packaging that was meant to be what we would call kid appealing. How much cooperation did you get on the state level? Are states pushing hard on this? Because it seems like they would certainly have the proximity to take care of their own retailers in a way the federal government. Right. So a lot of the, a lot of the enforcement activity that FDA undertakes at a federal level is actually through the states. And so the FDA contracts with the states to do inspections. And so there's a lot of cooperation. I had met with state attorney generals about the prospect of taking joint actions with them. So we had some joint meetings with state attorney generals. So there was a lot of coordination and cooperation with the states. Some states, some municipalities were more aggressive than others. But I would say on the whole, there was a lot of joint activity. The e-cigarette market sort of cleaves on a number of lines. So some of these are the delivery mechanisms and others are the flavors. Right. How do these so play out for kids. So there's different kinds of products. So broadly speaking, there's open tank systems and then there's the cartridge-based systems. The cartridge-based systems are things like Jewel or Views or Blue, where you have an e-cigarette that you buy in a convenience store, price point's usually thirty or forty dollars, and you can buy disposable cartridges that you plug in, you smoke a cartridge, and then you're done with it. You buy a new cartridge and cartridges come in different flavors. The open tank systems are typically those larger battery contraptions that you see. They're typically sold in adult vaping stores. And with those, you have to pour the liquid into the open tank vaping system. And you typically unscrew something, you pour it in, you screw it back on. 
the kids don't like the open tank systems as much. If you look at the data on what kids are using, they're typically using the cartridge-based products, in part because the open tank systems have a higher price point, in part because they produce large plumes of smoke and the kids are looking for something that, that they can conceal. And in part because they like the the convenience of having the sort of cheap disposable product that's sleek. I think part of the appeal here isn't just you know the buzz from the nicotine. I think part of the appeal is the form and the factor of some of these disposable cartridge-based products, and particularly Juul. I mean, Juul happened to make a product that kids found fashionable. Yeah, and you've actually gone over Juul specifically. I mean, how big a key to this problem is this one company? Well, I think they're a large part of the problem. You know, we didn't have a youth vaping problem. In fact, youth rates of vaping was coming down. It had spiked, you know, a number of years ago, like three or four years ago, and it was starting to come down. So in 2017, when we announced our comprehensive plan on tobacco, vaping rates have been coming down. I think a large part of the spike, if not most of it, was a result of Juul. What we didn't anticipate in 2018 was the massive use of Juul's product by kids. And over 2018, we started to go very public with the problem. We called it an epidemic for the first time. We started to take enforcement action. And over that time period, when Juul was fully on notice that there was a significant problem and Juul acknowledged that there was a significant problem, they managed to grow their market share among kids. So, you know, they actually increased the number of kids using their product. That's rather remarkable. It is. And part of this is the flavors as well, right? There's some fruit flavors and other things that are just that's More part like of it. I think that's part of it. I think the issue here is you have to reduce the access and the appeal of these products to kids. The access is through typically the convenience stores. It's these cheap disposable cartridge-based products. The appeal is the form and factor, but it's also the flavor. The flavors make them more attractive. These are candy flavors. I don't think the flavors are the whole story. I think now that Juul has pulled its flavors off the market, I think a lot of kids are going to migrate to their tobacco flavors because if you taste their tobacco flavors, it doesn't taste like a cigarette. You know, one of the tobacco flavors has a sweet taste to it. I'm not so sure. And if you use their flavored products, the flavor wasn't that prominent. It had a sweetness associated with it, but the actual flavor itself wasn't that prominent. So I think that kids are going to still use the Juul product. I think what they're going to be attracted to is the high nicotine content, the 5% nicotine and the quick hit, the nicotine buzz. And I think they're attracted to the form and factor and the fact that it's concealable and disposable and doesn't create a large plume. And I think the flavoring helps, but it helps make it more attractive to them, but it's the sweetness, not necessarily the flavor itself. The first time you smoke a cigarette, you take a inhale, and you know that that cigarette is bad for you. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need a public message. The first time you take an, a hit off an e-cigarette, do you have that same hit that's sort of yeah, you harsh? Do. I mean, so that's part of what makes Juul, I think, a more successful product among adult smokers is it gives you what, what a smoker will call that, that throat hit that hit of, of nicotine in the back of their throat. So you do get that sensation from the e-cigarettes that more closely replicate the experience of having an e-cigarette. And if you use a Juul product, it, you have sort of a crackling sound, so it simulates a cigarette when you take a puff of it. If you're using it for the first time, you're going to cough. You're going to gag just like you would with a cigarette. It's going to take some time before you can acclimate to it and actually use it. So it's not as harsh. doesn't have the same harshness, but it has some of that harshness, and that's part of the appeal to adults. Menthol, in particular, masks that harshness. That's why we worry that menthol flavoring in cigarettes generally is something that helps kids initiate on tobacco because it masks, it numbs in the throat, and it masks a lot of that harshness. So there's enough of a hit that kids who are trying to be transgressive will actually feel like they're being transgressive. Right? It scratches <laughs> that itch. You, you'll know you're doing something wrong if that's the question. So, you know, a lot of the folks that are listening to our podcast are you know, involved in schools, their parents, their educators, or their school system leaders. 
at that level, what can folks in schools do to push back on their students in their building using these products? You know, at the agency, we put together a lot of public messaging tools, and and we, we partnered with Scholastic. That was another thing we did to develop material for schools, a curriculum for schools to teach students about the risks associated with vaping, posters that could be put up in schools. So I would encourage educators, people in and around schools, to try to use some of that material and other material. There's been other material developed outside of FDA to educate kids about these risks and do it at a young enough age that you're going to be influencing sort of the next cohort of users. And so, you know, you you see a lot of the teen use among juniors, seniors, try to get to people when they're freshmen, you know, younger, where they where they haven't had that social influence yet, but you want to educate them about this so that they're ready for that first time that they're tempted by it. And as far as your colleagues that are back at the FDA, where you served as head for two years, what do you think the FDA should do nationally to keep, particularly to keep these out of the hands of kids? I was pretty clear on the record. We put out a policy in March of 2019 to try to restrict access to the flavored products in convenience stores because we we felt we needed to reduce the access and appeal of these products to kids. The kids get them in in the convenience stores and the the flavors make them more attractive, more appealing. So our policy was to put in place significantly increased age verification requirements that would effectively take the flavored products out of convenience stores. But we said that that was our action based on a 2018 National Youth Tobacco Survey data showing a 78% increase in youth use year over year. We said that the 2019 data showed another sharp increase, and we were talking about an increase of 10 to 20%. We said at the high end, it could be as high as 30%, but we don't think it would be that high. In fact, it was that high. We said that we would have to consider taking all of the pod-based, the cartridge-based products off the market, that at that level of youth use, they may not have enough redeeming public health value to adults to justify leaving them on the market. And so I think a reasonable policy would be to consider taking all of the cartridge-based products off the market, requiring them to file applications like they're obligated to do under law. These products are on the market out of an exercise of enforcement discretion by the FDA. Technically, to remain on the market, they need to have fully executed applications through the agency. So let me ask you to make a prediction about the future. Do you think that we're going to see this vaping, particularly among youth, which is where my concern lies? Do we expect that it will go down, or do most signs point to it still going up over time? Well, I think it's going to probably go up before it goes down. I mean, I don't think you're going to see another 30% increase on top of a 78% increase and a 30% increase. But I think that, you know, you're likely to see another small increase next year before you see a leveling off. You're not going to turn this around overnight. You know, this isn't, this is a fad among kids, and, and fads can change. But the challenge here is it's an addictive substance. A lot of the surveys that have been done of teen use, one of the things that critics cite is it's just occasional use. Well, the kids are just using it, you know, a couple times a month because the surveys ask, have you used it in the past 30 days? But you're going to see episodic use before you see continuous use. So we're getting a snapshot of a, of a burgeoning epidemic. A lot of those occasional users, kids who are using it just on weekends, are going to become long-term users because it's an addictive substance. If you look at the opioid crisis, nobody starts out, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but most people don't start out mainlining heroin. They start out using a Percocet at a party, then they start crushing it, and then they start going to injectable drugs as a progression. There's going to be a progression here where a lot of these kids who initiated on nicotine were using it socially at parties on weekends now are going to become long-term users of these e-cigarettes. And that's what I think the surveys next year are going to start to capture, that we've turned a whole generation of kids into long-term users of nicotine. So 
there's one thing about nicotine, which is an addictive substance, but it's not nearly the toxin that you're going to, or the toxin well, it's not, you're going to get out of cigarettes, right? So right. then my question is, do we just expect this to be an increase in e-cigarette use, or do you also think that this is sort of a gateway to more cigarette use? Both. I mean, some kids are going to become long-term users of e-cigarettes as a result of getting initiated on nicotine through the e-cigarette products. E-cigarettes have their own risks associated with them. They are causing some damage to the lung. There's no free lunch here. Some proportion of these kids who become long-term users of nicotine are going to become smokers because the cigarettes are cheaper than the e-cigarettes, and they might not be able to get enough nicotine through the e-cigarettes, so they're going to start to supplement with with regular cigarettes. So you'll have initiated people who, kids who never would have been smokers now are going to be initiated on nicotine in a way that's going to transport them into becoming smokers of regular cigarettes. Well, That's the public health tragedy. Well, I hope you're wrong about where it's headed, but thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about Thanks for having me. Scott Gottlieb talked about policy efforts to keep vaping devices out of students' hands. But schools, parents, and communities all have a role to play. To talk about this, I brought on Mila Vascones-Gatsky and Evie Blod. Evie Blod, Mila Vascones-Gatsky, welcome to the report card. Thank you. Thank you. So we just talked with Scott Gottlieb former FDA commissioner, about sort of the big picture of vaping and how it might differ for adults and kids. But this is an education podcast. And I sort of brought you guys here to let me and the audience in on what we're seeing in schools. So Mm -hmm. first of all, Mila, you work as a substance abuse counselor in Arlington Public Schools, and you've been doing this for a while. So can you tell me when this sort of surfaced in Arlington? How long has this problem been around? I can tell you that before 2017, we dealt very little with tobacco products. Kids, I think, got the message that the smoking was no good. And we were dealing with, you know, alcohol, marijuana use. Kids sometimes come intoxicated or were on possession of marijuana. But on 2017 is when we saw the shift. We knew about e-cigarettes and we did, you know, education, general education to teachers, but we really didn't see it until the end of the school year, 16-17. In June, we saw, we saw two cases of kids being on possession of the, especially the jewel. And um, by the following year, it just, you know, it was an explosion in terms of the number of cases that we saw. And that put the schools on the situation as what to do with these kids. APS has a program called Second Chance with any kid caught for the first time alcohol or marijuana. They go to this educational program. It's a three-day educational program. When vaping appeared, we were like, what do we do? So they decided, okay, we're going to also do this. So in terms of just suspending them from school, that's what the policy used to be. The policy was changed when Second Chance came on board. And we just added vaping as a consequence for the students. You're saying that basically from the summer of 2017 is when mm-hmm. this sort of surfaced and yes. it's fairly skyrocketed since there. Evie, you've been doing reporting on this issue for a while. Is that the basic landscape that you've seen sort of across the board in schools? You know, some would suggest that it grew earlier in some schools, especially maybe beyond what adults recognize. <laughs> yeah, what do you, uh, know? you know, we heard from principals who said, you know, we don't really exactly know when this started because it took us a while to understand what it was and what we were seeing. One principal in New Hampshire told me that the way they found out that vaping was a big problem at their school was bathroom breaks were getting more frequent and longer. Mm -hmm. And he just couldn't figure out what was going on. They would go in there. There weren't like fights in the bathrooms. So they shut them all down except for one and monitored and looked at the data and figured out what was going on. 
The problem is these devices are so small and kids can use them pretty discreetly. They'll hollow out a highlighter and shove it inside. <laughs> They'll tug it into their sleeve. And there's even like a secondary market of hoodies where you can stick yep. it in the drawstring. Mm-hmm. And so to some extent, adults in schools will tell you when they started noticing right. it. They can't exactly tell you when kids started doing it. Yeah, because... I'm sure they don't come out and report it. And it's it's great. Mila brought some contraband into the studio <laughs> that she confiscated from students. You got a lot of stuff here. I mean, can you walk us through sort of like the evolution of these sure. cigarettes and then, you know, what kids are using now? Because a big part of this is, mm-hmm. boy, it's hard to detect. I mean, yes. these jewels that you've got here are tiny. Yeah. Well, this is part of my stash. I didn't bring everything. We have each substance abuse council have a lot of these things that are confiscated. But, you know, the e-cigarettes back and I can tell you maybe 2015, 2016, we started reading about in Europe, you know, the e-cigarettes caught on. So you have the first generation that is basically an e-cigarette that looks like a regular cigarette. Yeah, those look like plastic, cigarettes. you know, and you basically inhale it and the tip turns red like a regular cigarette. And then they got a little more sophisticated. And the second generation are these ones that are considered look like a pen. Many of them, you know, you won't see them, but there are also you can replace the tips. But then what happened is in 2017 is when Juul really took off because they are very portable. This is uh, the charger. So you can connect it on any SUV. Right. You take the top that is the one that have. these are the cartridges. The, each color means different flavor. This is mint. Right. And this is mango. Mango was the favorite flavor for a long, long time. And what you do is basically you charge your machine. It has a little light, tells you when it's fully charged or if it needs more charging. Then you just put your pot on the top and then you inhale it. And these are corollaries to cigarettes, but they're very different on some dimensions. So first of all, this jewel is the equivalent to sort of how many cigarettes? A pack of cigarettes. Okay. Because jewel, if you see the boxes, they say this is 5% nicotine. But what they don't tell you is 59 milligrams per pot of nicotine. So that's a lot of nicotine in a little pot. And it can last you 200 puffs. Now, it depends how much you inhale it because, you know, cigarettes, you get like 10 hits out of a cigarette. You know, I mean, if you are a heavy inhaler, you may have less. So the thing is with the jewel, if you inhale longer, harder, that means that the vape, shouldn't we call it vapor, it's an aerosol. Okay, the chemicals stay in your system longer, which is, you know, a concern because it's much more damaging. But, you know, the Jules is still the number one, I think, e-cigarette. There are other ones like this one, the Hyde, and the Novel. So they are becoming, and this one is the one that you can refill. The Jules, supposedly you cannot refill it, but I have kids that open them up and put cotton balls. So it doesn't burn your throat that much. And... If you can open this, you can put any any oil right. in there. And that's another part of this problem. That's yeah. where you have this sort of black market end. And this is also where you can get THC or, or, or sort of like marijuana smoking yes. through this. And that's also grown up over the same time period in schools? No. The marijuana oil, we have seen them more recently. I will say the past year. First, it was the jewel. And, you know, you can test if this one has marijuana or not. But now we're seeing more that the kids are putting marijuana oil or the dab that is the wax. You put it on the heating element and you inhale it. So as far as principals and teachers dealing with this, I'm sure the kids' practice of vaping has Mm -hmm. has sort of outpaced policy because usually policy has to catch up. You know, I've experienced this a little bit. I had a friend who was 
touring a school with her kid that her that her mm-hmm. student might might go to that high school and they were in a class and a kid vaped in the class. They drew the teacher's attention to it and the teacher sort of shrugged it off like, yeah, they're not supposed to do that, but it's hard to keep at bay, which I find astonishing. Yeah. But I'm also curious, that seems like a standout anecdote. And I'm wondering how principals, teachers and school districts are trying to grapple with this rise in vaping. I can tell you from the experience at Arlington Public Schools, Arlington has always invested in, you know, the whole child, keeping the child healthy, mental health needs, substance abuse. I think we are one of the few counties that have seven substance abuse counselors on board. We do prevention, intervention, you know, you name it. And you have seven counselors for about how many high school students? We have four high schools right now and five or six middle schools. So the middle school people is there one day a week. The high school have a person four days a week, an alternative school. And right now we're also going into elementary schools as a consultants just to do parent presentation and staff presentation. So Arlington has been, I, I think, is trying to get ahead of the curve. A vaping came to us. And as a result, you know, they have been changes on policy. There is a lot of staff presentations, you know, like show and tell. So they know what to look for. And the, the policy at school is you can't obey. This is, you know, another tobacco product. It's a different delivery. It's still nicotine. So, you know, but we have, we saw pictures of kids and we identified the kid, the classroom, the teacher. So we went and gave more support to the teacher. And the kids, I mean, we found out that because they take pictures and they send it through a Snapchat. And then another kid see it or the parents saw it. And look, this kid is doing this in the classroom. So there was a crackdown the first year of 17, 18. The school took the approaches like we're going to combat this from the get go. It was myself, an administrator and the SRO, the school resource officers going classroom to classroom. We went to telling them this is, you know, this is not allowed at school. You are going to have consequences. So, I mean, that policy have remained. So you've done a lot of outreach. But as far as the consequences, how is that structured? It seems to me that most parents would say "Ah, there needs to be a consequence. And on the other hand, there's got to be some desire to help get them off the product. right? Right. APS switched maybe six years ago from a punitive point of view of, okay, before the policy was you get caught with any kind of contraband. Tobacco was a one-day suspension and, you know, send you to court. Alcohol and marijuana were three or five days, depending. Then they change. And now instead of being punitive, we are more educational. So you get caught, you get sent at home, that day home. Like for example, if you get a vape. Your parents have to come to get you. You have a conference with the administrator. And then you are referred to an educational program. It's a free day for high school, a two-day for middle school. And that session, that educational program, have a parent component. So parent comes, they do show and tell, tell them about, you know, addiction, whatever kind of addiction. And then there is a booster session 45 days later where parent and kid come together and we look for changes. What have change in your behavior? What decisions are you making? So, you know, we're trying to do more education because if you become addicted to nicotine, you're going to need treatment. You don't need punishment. I mean, if you send them home, the kid, what's going to do? Go vape more at home. But we don't want that. But when you get repeated offenders, I'm assuming the sort of consequences start to stack up. Right. Then come the consequences of you get the free day suspension and the suspension is staying on your record. If the first time you go to the program, that suspension is a sponge. 
And, you know, many kids don't want to have something on the disciplinary record, so they usually go to the program. Second time means you need treatment, you need to go for resources where we offer support to parents on guiding them, you know, where they can access services. Evie, what have you heard in your reporting? How are other schools sort of struggling or coping with these problems? Right. Well, there's two concerns here, right? There's the health and well-being of the child, which, of course, is the highest priority. There's also the need for a a lack of disruption in the educational environment. You know, this we're talking about some chemicals that are mm-hmm. pretty scary to adults, but a bottle of water can be distracting in a school, right. right? And that's why, you know, schools don't allow kids to whip out a bag of potato chips in the classroom. And so schools are kind of trying to wrestle with these two concepts at once while recognizing, you know, so that they don't get overly punitive. They recognize the need for a child to be healthy, the need to address the underlying behavior. But also, you know, if we've got 12 kids going to the bathroom Mm -hmm. for extended periods of time, what do we do? We've seen schools, there's a market of vaping detectors that some schools have considered putting in their school restrooms so that they can get an alert when enough of the chemical is in the air. Some schools have shut off access to restrooms and and classrooms in corners of the school that don't have as much adult supervision. We've seen schools discussing incorporating this into drug tests for athletics participation. There are two school districts in Kansas that are working with an attorney in Kansas City that are considering suing manufacturers of these products. Yes, not just because of the effects on the children, but because of the effects on the educational environment. And that's kind of a novel lawsuit. We'll see what happens Mm. with that. Yeah, you know, I'm sort of interested in this, but, you know, if you look at sort of the arc of this whole issue, we as a public health community, we beat up pretty well on underage smoking over the past Mm -hmm. couple of decades, right? I mean, there was a time in the mid-90s when we had, you know, 28, 30 percent of kids saying, I used cigarettes in the past 30 days. And then that's been knocked down to around 5%, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty fantastic uh, public health victory. So what do you say to people who might think, look, that was cigarettes. They're really bad for you. This, yeah, we we should push back on it, but it shouldn't be equated with cigarettes and it's not the same level of alarm. I've talked to folks with the Truth Campaign, which was very active Mm -hmm. in cigarette prevention. I remember my sister was part of the smoke-free class of 2000. And just the idea that cigarettes were bad for you was just something I was so aware of as a teenager. This has kind of snuck up on us a bit. I think that, you know, the way schools teach health education now is to teach students not, here's a list of behaviors and substances that you should stay away from. And if you don't, you're a bad kid. Do's and don'ts, right? The ways that they teach health education now is increasingly more of helping students develop an ethic and an understanding of what you're doing when you participate in a Mm risk-taking behavior. How am I going to decide where the line is for me and what does it mean? And so, you know, there is a need to be honest with students to say, not just to equate an e-cigarette with, you know, heroin or or to, to just put it on, right. you know, and I think a lot of folks are kind of wrestling with that in the public health sphere. At the same time, are, are students drawing a distinction between these more common mass marketed e-cigarette products and the black market products that could have chemicals in them that are completely mm-hmm. unregulated? They don't know what they are. They might be causing these mysterious deaths that we don't quite understand. Right. And there's also, you know, the folks at the Truth Campaign told me, we don't know the long-term effects of vaping. Right. And maybe an e-cigarette is healthier than a cigarette, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's 
inherently a healthy thing to do. Yeah, that's quite a roll of the dice. Yeah. And, and so I think that there's just a concern that we don't quite know the outlines of this in, in kids' perception, how it's going to affect their long-term mm-hmm. behavior and health. Right. So there's a need to be honest with students, but that's difficult because there's such an urgency among adults. Well, Mila, I'm curious about this because if you just sort of look across the issues that kids are being confronted with, we used to have this sort of do's and don'ts, right? Just say no. The truth mm-hmm. campaign, cigarettes are bad for you. Don't do them. Cut and dry. And that may right. be advantageous. Right now, vaping seems like a, you know, a way off of cigarettes for some people. Mm-hmm. So that would be a step in the right direction. And then you have just this whole other contingent in the public eye of we should legalize marijuana. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're in D.C. right right now and marijuana has been legalized. Mm -hmm. We got some cross-cutting current. So I wonder when you're dealing with kids, how do they sort of internalize these public health messages that we're trying to deliver through the schools? Mm -hmm. The point about marijuana is very confusing for kids. It's very confusing. They are like, but, you know, it's a natural plant. Anybody can use it. You can use it as a medicine. So we need to make the difference between THC content, that is what gives you the high, and can, you know, have, you know, a potency to become, may become addicted to that, versus CBD, that is the medicinal juice that, you know, they're, they're using marijuana, you know, taking the THC out. So that is number one. Number two, I do believe that the health campaigns in terms of long term won't work for kids. They can't even think what I'm going to do tomorrow. <laughs> They're not going to think about my health in 10 years, 20 years. So the way at least that we try to approach it is we give them the information and we empower them to, do, to make a good decision. You know, this one will bring you problems to school. Your parents don't approve it. You are a victim of a marketing campaign. You know, I showed them, you know, how the advertisement is, are targeting them because as a company owner, if I own Jewel, I want to have more clients. So when you start giving them the information, they start getting that knowledge, like, okay, it's my decision. You know, you empower them. And some of them are going to listen to that message. Others may not. You may need to work with them more. But I think just scaring them about the health consequences, you know, that is the preferred method doesn't work for them. So let me ask you about parents, because I would hope that parents would be the front lines on this, not the school. Mm -hmm. And Also, I, as a parent, realize that I am probably woefully underinformed about these things, right? They're rising up quickly on a school system that can observe thousands of kids. When you just have a couple of kids and you haven't seen any signs yet, you don't know what to be wary of. What should parents know? I think technology is a challenge for us because as adults, like for example, I'm considered an immigrant on technology too because I was not born with a tablet. Like, kids now. So parents are catching up with technology and the messaging. I mean, all the groups, Snapchat, Discord, you know, you name it, all this social media that the kids connect through. And that's how they advertise, you know, all the uses of e-cigarettes. Parents don't know about it. Many parents give a phone to the kid and have no idea what happened. Well, it's interesting, too, because if you think about sort of like the cigarette messages that once got sent out, well, you know, formal advertisements did a lot of that outreach. And then there might be messages in movies where, you know, the breakfast club is smoking. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those are relatively benign, perhaps. However, now we have direct peer-to-peer sort of things coming through YouTube, and those messages are pretty hard to monitor, right? There is no filter. 
You know, like, for example, remember the CDs with all the bad words, you will get a, a stamp and parents right. will know, okay, this is not allowed. There is no that. The kids have live on a, on a world. They connect with people from all. I have a teenager at home. So I'm telling you, you know, you try to catch up and learn what they learn and know where he's at. He's at home, but he's have a whole world of information that I'm not aware of. So parents have to catch up with technology. They really need to learn the truth about, you know, jewels, e-cigarettes, information, but also what to do. Many parents feel powerless. They, they don't know what to do. My kid, you know, they have their own money. So you have to go back to basics. Parenting one-on-one. Where is your kid? Not only on physical presence, but on the, techno- on, on the world out there, on the World Wide Web. Where are they? Who are their friends? Where the money goes? Kids now have credit cards. Okay, monitor the credit cards. Link your bank account to their bank account. And then you see, okay, he's spending, where is this money go? Who's this merchant that he's spending money on? And go to a counselor at school or if, you know, if you're on Arlington, you're lucky, you can come. We show you everything that is there. We show you if you smell something that smells fruity in your home. You go home like, oh, why it smells so good? Well, your kid may be using one of these mango cotton candy flavors, you know, if you notice that your kid all of a sudden is getting a lot of colds and cough and he have a dry throat, you know, and he's not sick, no allergies, you have to start wondering, what is my kid doing? And check their backpacks, honestly. Yeah. And I I, I, got to tell you, the, (laughs) the things that I'm looking in front of me, I would recognize half of them as suspicious, but half Mm -hmm. of these sort of components look fairly innocuous and like, you know, like it could be a pack of gum or candy or a Mm -hmm. flash drive. So parents, just do yourself a favor and figure out what these things look like. Because you could certainly look through a kid's backpack and go right past it without being. And and you have to look for the, uh, you know, like you were mentioning the the sweatshirts with the things, the backpacks. There are cigarettes, highlighters, pens that are really e-cigarettes. Evie. Arlington Public Schools is investing some full-time employees in this work. Are other school districts investing in this? Are they taking responsibility for it? Is it their responsibility? Well, you know, I think a lot of schools would say they don't stop to ask what's their responsibility anymore because, you know, that line has kind of blurred. They have to deal with the consequences of these things, ready or not. I think a a lot of schools that we talk to have engaged public health organizations in their areas to do some public education with parents to work with students in a way that so that they know if you choose to do this, this is what you are doing. This does contain nicotine. Nicotine is addictive. But they also kind of have to thread this needle. I mean, among Mm -hmm. adults who have smoked traditional cigarettes for years. This can be a cessation device and it can be effective. And there are students in schools who go home and see their parents smoking an e-cigarette. And from a public health perspective, it's probably a lot healthier than what they did before. Right. And so schools are working with public health officials to have kind of these honest conversations. You know, I have a friend who has a teenage boy. And after she read my story in Ed Week, saw the photo and realized what she had seen in her son's Uh bedroom, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it is that just getting parents engaged in this and letting them know why it's an issue. It crosses social lines. I think when I was in high school, we had an idea of the kind of kid we expected to go out back and smoke a cigarette behind the school. I don't think that that 
from what we're hearing is as common anymore. Yeah. It kind of crosses a lot of those social boundaries. So making sure that parents are engaged, not like your kid has this big, scary monster in their backpack, right. but like, let's have a conversation about this. Mila, I wonder a little bit just about the nomenclature around this. Public health officials may talk about these things one way, and I don't know how effective that may or may not be, but I'm pretty certain that kids are probably using different lingo for this. So how do those lines get crossed? I think, you know, kids, for example, now we use jewel or juuling. It's a verb right now. When juuling, the verb. Juuling, yeah. juuling. You know, you're juuling? Yes. They don't use the terminology that, unfortunately, we're using in a lot of the advertising. The kids never call about, never talk about e-cigarettes. They call the jewel the vapes. And even though it's, it's not really vapor what the kids are, are using, you're not really vaping, you're, you know, aerosoling yourself. I think we need to use the messaging that they can understand. You know, if you're going to talk about vaping, talk about vaping. You're going to talk about Juul, talk about Juul and use that name, even though it's the name that the industry use, you know, the, the, the makers and the sellers of this. They are not going to understand. If you talk about e-cigarettes, the kids don't use, never, I have never heard a kid talking about an e-cigarette. They either call them by the name, the Suring, the Jewel, the Novel. They don't use e-cigarettes. And I think we're missing the point if we're trying to, you know, combat vaping, talking about e-cigarettes. They don't connect those things. You have to use their own language. Evie, quickly, how much lingo is there out there that parents are going to be unfamiliar with? I mean, is there a whole sort of subculture language around this that, Anybody over the age of 25 may not know. There's definitely a culture beyond the language, just the way that teens are using these products. It's not even necessarily the physical sensation that they're going for. You know, there's whole YouTube channels of teens blowing smoke rings in different formations and covertly using them in the back of the classroom and doing all kinds of tricks. And so on the one hand, it's good to understand that. On the other hand, there's some value in calling them an e-cigarette to emphasize that this is mm -hmm. a form of using a substance. And so, you know, I, I think that watching a, a child's behavior and what they're interested in is as important as knowing the language. Mm -hmm. But it is kind of a complicated landscape for adults to keep up with. And I was convinced that YouTube was only a force for good. <laughs> <laughs> so prediction is hard, especially about the future, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. Looking forward... Is this problem just going to get bigger without any diminishment in the near future? I mean, are we just at the beginning of this epidemic rise? Or do you think that, you know, policy, public health and the schools are catching up fast and we might be getting our hands around it? I hate to be pessimistic because I'm always saying they have glass full. But I think until we get parents on board, adults on board, we have 2,700 in a comprehensive school. No matter what the school teaches you, there is not enough manpower to monitor the bathrooms, to make sure the kids are not having contraband. It starts at the home. Because at the end, any addiction, then who ends up taking care of, of the kid? The parents. Parents need to be informed. But I don't see a lot of information campaigns targeted to parents. There is, few, there is a lot going on to kids right now. I think, you know, Schools, we deal with the kids and we try to reach out for PTA. But how many parents come to a PTA meeting? I mean, 20, counting the presenters, you know, because everybody's busy and working. So I think we need to, you know, inform parents. Most of the campaign should be targeted to parents, recognizing the symptoms, teaching them what to look for. Go back to parenting one-on-one. -on -one. 
And I think that way you will see a more impact when parents are, you know, controlling and watching over the kids' supervision. So, Mila, you think parents have a lot more to do. Evie, any more hopeful take? (laughs) Boy, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't know what vaping will look like in a few years and who will be doing it. I'm not a futurist. I do know that kids are going to keep exploring and pushing Mm -hmm. boundaries. When I was a reporter at a daily paper 12 years ago, it was K2 that was synthetic marijuana marketed as potpourri, but wink, wink, we're really smoking it. And and who knows what's going to happen in the future. So many of these issues surrounding child well-being relate to the way that communication and social interaction have Mm -hmm. changed so rapidly in the last 10, 15 years, right under our feet. Mm -hmm. And so if it's not this, there's going to be some other risk-taking behavior that we're going to be concerned about. I don't know that that's hopeful, but it's probably realistic. Well, thank you both for coming on the podcast. Parents, if you're listening, get in the game. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) Evie, Mila, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Report Card. I would like to thank our guests, Scott Gottlieb, Evie Blad, and Mila Vasconis-Gotsky for joining us on today's episode. I also want to thank our team of producers. This episode wouldn't have been possible without the help of Lexi West, Sophia Gallo, Tyler Hoover, and Gage Hurley of Liquid Media. Of course, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, drop us a line at ed.podcast at aei.org. Until next time, I'm Nat Malkus. Malchus.